$550,000, welcome into the interest. Bidding 640, I'll take. Online bid at $700,000. Don't let it slip through your fingers. Do we go 1,160 in here? This is fun, join in. <laughs> at $1.2 million, folks. It is going. At $2 million, buyers. Our last charge. All out. So. We just live up in Whangarei in a house right next to a wildlife sanctuary. We really lucked out getting into the property market when we did. Hi, I'm James. I uh, bought my house in 2018, and in that time, it's earned more than my wife and I combined. I'm a registered electrician, and my wife was a, a registered nurse. The house we bought is a um, three-bedroom house. It's on a like decently small property with a bit of bush around it. When we bought the property, um, it was about in the like $450,000 range. I looked at on homes.co.nz about two, three months ago, and the value was up the high $600,000 range, which is pretty surprising. Definitely in that time, the, the house earned more money than um, my wife and I. Wow, that's one hard-working house, and James and his partner are not alone in that. If we look at the numbers here in Wellington, where I'm speaking to you from, this year the average house has earned, and I say that in inverted commas, nearly three times as much as the average person. It's a pretty amazing house that can work harder than a nurse and a sparky. Hello, and welcome to Consume This, with me, John. And me, Sophie. Twice a month, we're going to be diving into the stories that are shaping Aotearoa. What does it mean to be a living human that works, plays and consumes in 2021? And when did consumption become a dirty word? This week, we're looking at the issue you've told us is the most important thing affecting our lives today. There's a housing frenzy at the bottom of the world. This month's data has revealed a myriad of record median house prices across the, the country. The housing market has become effectively a runaway gravy train. 50,000 houses on the market right now compared to 60,000 15 years Among ago. Among the 37 nations that make up the OECD, New Zealand has the most unaffordable housing market. Every region across the country saw a price hike. New Zealand's housing crisis is also a human rights crisis. Today the news that house prices have hit an all-time Obviously high. we want to ensure that our first-home buyers can get into the market. That is something that is top of mind for us. Yep, we're talking first homes. Home ownership rates in New Zealand have been falling since 1991 and recently hit a 70-year low. Runaway prices means that to buy the average home, a Wellingtonian needs a deposit of $205,000. That's $38,000 more than this time last year. Let's not get started on what you need in Auckland. To put that into perspective, if you had the 167k deposit 12 months ago but missed out, you'd have needed to have saved 73% of the average wage after tax between now and then to be in with a shot at that same house today. All this is resulting in a generation of young Kiwis, especially those that don't come from family wealth, feeling left out in the cold. And on top of that, just like James, almost two-thirds of homeowners told us they wouldn't be able to afford the home they live in now if they were in the market today. I definitely don't think we would have been able to buy this house. Yeah, I think the property market as it is and has been for the past couple of years is pretty crazy, with like house prices skyrocketing. That might sound staggering. 
unbelievable even. But this isn't just data from a handful of people who we asked down the pub. This data comes from the Consumer New Zealand Sentiment Tracker, which is a nationally representative survey of one and a half thousand real human New Zealanders. We'll be talking more about what that survey told us later in the episode. Right, down to business. This episode attempts to answer two big questions. Is it harder than ever to buy your first home? And if so, why? On the way, we'll speak to Alan Thorpe at Habitat for Humanity about why home ownership is so important to us. When a family has security of tenure, they have stability in their life. And economist Bernard Hickey to find out what's happened with the market. We have uh, house prices at nine, ten times income. Most people think an affordable level is three, four times income. And what could and should we do about it? What you need to do is tax wealth. Broad-based, low rate, we, we like that. I think we need to understand why home ownership is so important to us as a nation. And to do that, we're joined by Alan Thorpe from Habitat for Humanity. They're a registered charity and community housing provider. Basically, they build quality homes with a focus on availability and affordability. All right, well, welcome to Consume This. Thanks for having me on. If you could perhaps give us a little bit of background on how Habitat works and how long you've been running for. Habitat for Humanity in New Zealand has been approximately running for about 30 years, and our primary service that we've delivered is actually home ownership. So we have a progressive home ownership service that we deliver. So we've housed 530 whānau into homes over that 30 year period, enabling them onto a pathway for home ownership. How does that work exactly, Alan? Like, so what's the pathway that they use to, to own their home? Um, they begin with us as renters. So they rent their home for five years. Then we offer them at the end of five years a sale and purchase agreement and they continue to pay their affordable rent so we charge 75% of market rental or an affordable rent for them no more than 30% of their income and they accumulate effectively a deposit in that first five years uh, then they move to getting this sale and purchase agreement and at the end of 10 years they've got enough equity in the property and the deposits enough that they can go and get a commercial mortgage and pay habitat out and title is then transferred to them Wow, that's amazing. Why do you think that it's so important for them? Why, why is the home ownership such a critical factor in their lives? When a family has security of tenure, they have stability in their life. Their educational outcomes are better. Their kids don't move from school to school. Their health outcomes are better. Uh, they're actually connected to their communities. So they have a social cohesion. Then they actually are house proud. Um, I can give you some examples if you'd like some examples of that. That'd be great. One of the most outstanding examples is a lady named Tammy. Tammy grew up in a state home in Carterau in quite difficult circumstances. She was a solo mum with four kids at that point, and she had significant barriers to entry, you know, accumulating a deposit. There's no other way that she could accumulate a deposit. How do you accumulate 20% of a million dollars or, or $670,000? It's just impossible. Tammy's story was so motivating for me to realize that what we do actually transforms people's lives. She had moved into this home where she had built it um, with volunteers in the Bunnings car park in 2012. Her children who had had significant amount of hospitalizations had visited doctors 300 times for asthma. Um, she was now in a warm, dry and safe home. So the health of her children was significantly better. Her kitchen table was now her study table and she was going to get a degree in social work 
she was so house proud of her home as she spoke about the home ownership process her demeanor her mana just completely changed what really motivated her was really her children and giving them a better platform for life and in 2020 um, she was able to get a commercial mortgage and pay habitat out and be on her way in terms of her own home ownership journey wow wow that's fantastic you know it strikes me as you tell that story you've housed 530 whanau if you look at the some of the stats the waiting lists for social housing people who really want to get on the ladder but can't and are, and are stuck renting do you ever feel like the problem's too big yeah you know the problem is too big one of the things that new zealand has done most recently is recognize that we've got a problem <laughs> which is great it wasn't too long ago where people were trying to say we didn't have a crisis yeah, I remember. <laughs> so i think we all recognize now that we've got a crisis and for me the critical piece is that we actually need to all own this problem now and then together we can all find a solution. I think we need to have a change in our narrative. We term housing in terms of economic language. We talk about demand, we talk about mm. supply, we talk about the property ladder, we talk about um, our investments. Actually, as a country, we need to recognise that housing is for people it's not a commodity. Yeah, it's the reframing from a housing to a home, right? Yeah. A home is something where you build a family and you build your life. Is that sort of something you see across your work, that the community is more cohesive and um, people are doing better? Yes, most definitely. We see that across our work. I mean, I've been involved in Habitat 14 years. In all of our family stories, we see that they've been empowered to build their own strength, stability and self-reliance. We've just delivered 12 homes into Tikaria, East Hamilton. And I think, my goodness, there's 12 more Tammies who are going to be transformed through that. Yeah, that's amazing. Over like 30 years, you must have seen, you know, a number of families obviously go through the program. Do you have any stories around children of some of the people who you've helped into housing? That strikes me as, you know, one of the tragic aspects of the, the crisis that we all now recognise we're in, that it's cyclical and it's intergenerational and that's having a huge impact on us as a society. One of our earlier families in our programme, each one of their children now also own their own home. It provided, I suppose, a stepping stone. When you see your parents actually strive and achieve a goal over a long period of time, then that has quite a significant impact on children watching that. Yeah, so many of us probably just took it for granted. Thank you, Ellen. That's been, uh, it was quite moving, really, actually. I feel really amazed by all the work that you guys have achieved and the outcomes for your families. Every day nowadays I seem to wake up in pain. At the moment I'm suffering from at least two broken teeth. I've tried not to deal with that pain, even though I've been enduring it for a while now. I like to justify that the reason I'm tolerating it is because I'm trying to save for a house. So it's become background uh, pain. You just learn to deal with it. It's just part of life. So I'm sacrificing in order to get somewhere, but that somewhere keeps moving further and further away from me, and I'm just left with the pain that I have at the moment. Okay, so my name is Vladimir Stravkovich. I've um, been in New Zealand for about 26 years now, so I feel... It's really my home. I was born in the old Yugoslavia 
There was a war in Bosnia between 91 and 95. The war was the tipping point for my parents to decide that maybe there is no future and that we should seek our life somewhere else. And I guess we found the furthest possible place we could on the opposite side of the world. Even though it was a new home, I wanted to feel like I belong in this place and I felt like having a house would be something that ties us to the land. At the time, I was only about 17, so did not have any means of actually purchasing a house. One night when I couldn't sleep, I just started daydreaming. What if I won the lotto? What would I do with that money? And the house was the first thing I even thought about because there was something that I could help my parents with and potentially secure my place here, feel like I'm home. About 10 years ago, I started thinking, yeah, but we're getting to the point where I may be able to afford a deposit. I started looking at the house prices. They were already in about $250,000 range here in um, Wellington. So those are the kind of houses I was looking at, and even that seemed within reach. I thought, a few more years of saving, and I should be able to do this. So I stopped going out, tried to save a little bit of money on alcohol and takeaways, so I gave up drinking altogether. I was so confident that my next step is actually buying a house. But I think that's when prices really started skyrocketing. And I thought, no, maybe I should wait. These prices seemed a bit too high. They'll probably fall back down. Unfortunately, they just kept rising and rising, and they're still going. I actually honestly back then believed that I might be able to afford something in central Wellington, not in some faraway suburb. Three or four years ago, I started thinking, well, maybe I can't buy in Wellington, but why not Lower Hut or Upper Hut? And nowadays, <laughs> looking at the real estate agent posters, even Upper Hut seems out of reach. Yeah, I've been saving, at, uh, especially at KiwiSaver, for about 10 years now, and it's amazing to see the balance keep increasing. Yet when I compare it to the house prices, they seem to be increasing a lot faster. So the, even though I'm saving, the finish line seemed to keep moving away. So it seemed like a futile effort. It took me decades to get to where I am now. How can I catch up to pretty much double that amount? So at the moment, I feel completely locked out of the market. The prices have exponentially risen where, for example, my pay has not increased in the past four years. You're just running after a moving finish line, probably attached to a car that's quickly driving away, and I'm starting to feel quite exhausted chasing after it. And I don't feel like I'm looking for anything extravagant. I just want something where I can feel like that's where I live. This is where, where I can, so to say, hang my hat. Not that I wear many hats. I just get blown off. Gosh, that $250,000 house sounds like a bloody dream now. Vladimir's situation might seem unique, but he's far from alone. Remember that research we mentioned at the start of the show? Over a third of 30 to 39-year-olds, the same age bracket as Vlad, told us they feel like rising house prices are creating an ever-increasing deposit requirement that they just can't catch up with. And it's hardly surprising when the average house price in Auckland has gone up over 200 grand this year. I know some of you Wellingtonians like to give us Jaffers a hard time, but this is happening all over the country. So John, it's 200 grand in Auckland, but how much do you think it is nationwide? Ooh, 150k? Ooh, you're pretty close. It's 168 grand. Really not that far behind the super city. 
Wow. Just shows when you hear a lot about people moving out of Auckland or Wellington to Christchurch or the West Coast or wherever it is just to afford a house. Even that seems like it's becoming harder and harder. And this, as we've heard, is having a very real effect. Vlad told us off the mic, and I, I know he won't mind me passing this on, but one of the big contributors to the breakdown of his marriage was the stress of having to move every year, of not having the stability of a, f- a first home would have provided. God, that's sad. Owning a house can bring huge quality of life improvements. But by leaving people locked out in the cold, we're at risk of creating a disenfranchised generation. I think it's clear we've got a problem with home affordability. But why? What are the mechanics? To dig into the dark economic heart of the housing market, we caught up with economic commentator, financial nerd and journalist at the Kaka, Bernard Hickey. People are trying to buy their first homes. We've seen crazy house prices. There was 25% rise in the market over the last 12 months. So what the bloody hell's going on? The market is broken and New Zealand's broken because of it and has been really for 30 years. We have uh, house prices at nine, ten times income. Most people think an affordable level is three, four times income, or at least having housing costs somewhere around about 30% of disposable income, particularly for the lowest quintile of our earnings population. We have the highest proportion of people paying more than 40% of their disposable income in rent. The Reserve Bank forecast in May that there would be 2.9% house price inflation in the next two and a half years. We blew through that in two months, we're well on to the way to where house prices should be, according to the Treasury, in 2023. And remember, New Zealanders now believe, in fact, they expect, they demand that house prices double every nine years. Wow. I see no change in it, and that's why I recommended young people who can't afford to wait 100 years, which is how long it would take for the government's current strategy for home affordability, which is the government's current strategy is we want house price inflation to be sustainable at around about 4%, which is not that much lower than income growth. And so you end up with taking 100 years to get from, to get from 10 times income to 5 times income. So today's young people, unless they've got you know friends and family able to lend them money or they, they're really beautiful or attractive or beefy and can sh- be sure to catch a good catch, then... They should leave for Australia or anywhere anywhere else where they can actually save some money, buy a house and have a life. Get the hell out of New Zealand as fast as you can. And it would be irresponsible of me or anyone else to say, oh, just hang in there, we've got this under control. No, you haven't. For 30 years you said you had it under control and you deliberately actually did things that made it worse. So, right. I mean, that's the advice you've given your daughters, I presume, is, is that the advice you've issued? No, because obviously my children are part of the landed gentry as oh, well, I because <laughs> I own a home. And so I'm spending a lot of my time making sure that I can buy more homes so that they can live in them without being kicked out by their landlords. And also because I like tax-free, government-guaranteed capital gain. Mm. And we uh, also have a reserve bank which has cut interest rates to naught, is independent and allowed to target, in fact, supposed to target interest rates, and its only tool is to print money to pump up the value of the housing market. Mm-hmm. When you print money, you make rich people even richer, you widen the inequality gap, and you create, I think, social pain that takes decades to work through. Everyone has worked it out. You see, the, the public are not stupid. They understand what's going on here. We have central banks 
with unlimited power to pump up the value of assets, all assets in the world. In New Zealand, of course, the only asset that really matters is the housing market. And it's clear that when we're in this sort of late stage capitalism, the way to go is to just get hold of any assets, hold it, wait for central banks and governments to bail out the market you're in, be it the stock market or the housing market, make sure you're in mm. and hold on for dear life. Do you think then that Sam Stubbs' advice around buy the most expensive house you can afford then, that advice still holds water? Or will the you know the pessimists out there saying the housing market will pop at some point because it has to, will that happen? You have a housing market which is worth $1.5 trillion, so five times GDP, which is twice as much as any other country in the world relative to their GDP. And you think, that's crazy. No one, that's bound to be a bubble that will burst. Mm. But look at it from the other point of view. Firstly, from a purely financial point of view, we have $300 billion worth of debt on top of the housing market. That sounds astonishingly large amounts of debt, but actually the housing market is worth $1.5 trillion. Well, that's not that bad. So we could easily <laughs> triple the debt at mm. near zero interest rates and have no problems whatsoever. And even if there was a fall in house prices, the Reserve Bank has done the stress testing, which shows that our banks could handle a 40 to 50% fall in house prices, no problem at all. Right. Remember, a 40 to 50% fall in house prices takes us back to where we were two years ago. So um, the point of my of all those little facts is to say the housing market may appear completely, crazily overvalued, bubblicious, mm -hmm. but actually it makes perfect sense in this environment where we've had not nearly enough house building for 35 years, essentially about half the house building rate per head of population that we needed. Secondly, we've had this epic fall in interest rates that has created an enormous increase in asset wealth which no one is planning to change. Mm. There are no suggestions that the renting proletariat of the world are going to rise up and demand change. In fact, all they want to do is rise up and get their fingernails on the ladder as well. Mm. And it's our job as property owners to make sure we stamp down on those hands on the ladder and make sure we keep them down. Mm. Pull the ladder up behind us. Yeah, I mean, that's a horribly cynical and nasty way to look at it. But I'm speaking as a median voter who, when you put them in a room with other median voters, tell the focus groupsters, yeah, this housing market is crazy. You know, all these other kids who can't get into the housing market, it's awful. And then the focus group asks, so would you like a capital gains tax? Oh, no. No, no, not that. No, no, I think, I think that would be dangerous for the economy. One of my questions was going to be, you know, what's the role of the banks here? Have they been lending irresponsibly? Do we have people who are right on the fringe? And if we see interest rates move, are we going to see a mass uh, series of mortgagee sales? But if I've understood what you've said correctly, actually it's almost as if the banks are doing a social good. They're helping, <laughs> they're helping more people get on the property ladder yeah. and accumulate wealth and that in theory will trickle down to their families and we know the, the theory around trickle-down economics and that maybe that's, it's not as good as um, it's pitched, but maybe it does work when there's familial ties. Yeah. Um, so the banks are doing what they should be doing to make their shareholders richer. Mm -hmm. They have a, a license to um, literally print money and to lend to um, 
a mortgage sector which has proven to be incredibly safe over the last 20 years or so. Over the last 10 years, our central bank has effectively tied those banks down as hard as they possibly could so that they don't pursue their natural instincts to lend until things go bang. And uh, that worked pretty well, actually, to the point where you make the point there will be some people who are stressed at the very margins. It's only the people who really bought in the last six months who were the most vulnerable. Unfortunately, that's first home buyers. And this is the sort of um, the dirty little secret of the housing market. The people who pay the price for the sins of the fathers are the sons and the daughters who try to leverage themselves up to get in. Because when there's a bust, they're the ones that are hurt the worst. And also when you regulate to control the bank's ability to blow up a market with leverage, Mm. you effectively make it most difficult for those people at the fringes to get in to the juicy free ride. Mm. That's where we are right now. We're at this point where um, a whole bunch of people just cannot get into the market because the deposits are too large. Mm. And the banks would like to lend to them, but the Reserve Bank knows that if it just let the bankers follow their, their base instincts, you'd have a complete explosion of value. This is, the, this is the horrible thing. If the banks were allowed to do what they really wanted to do, we wouldn't have the average house price at you know $1 million or whatever it was. It would be $5 million. Thank goodness it isn't, and thank goodness the Reserve Bank has done that. My view is that the Reserve Bank should squeeze down on the bank's ability to lend to buyers of existing homes and let them run amok with lending for new homes. Do you think that's the solution then, or not that there's you know one... Um, oh, I have solutions. <laughs> silver bullet. But, um, you know, like in Christchurch, in terms of our major cities, it's managed to keep its house prices relatively low, but it's partly done that because it's had high-density housing stock that's come out of the Christchurch earthquake is following that model our solution for the rest of the country? Yeah, the Christchurch model is really interesting because what effectively you saw was a proper market response to very high house prices, but only because there was a horrible earthquake and the government broke its rules of a lifetime by investing central government money in local infrastructure because it was seen as a crisis. Of course, you know, when a third of your city's houses are levelled, of course you try and rebuild them. And it worked. The solution, if, if you're looking for them, um, again, <laughs> I, I am unelectable and unemployable, so I can say all this stuff. I'd which, vote for you, Bernard. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, no I've, I've talked to the focus groups and they don't like me at all. But um, what you need to do is tax wealth. Some sort of land tax will do the trick. Broad-based low rate, we, we like that. So 0.2% land tax, everyone who owns any sort of land, be it a homeowner, farmer, land banker, they all pay the 0.2%. A thing called um, ratings value uplift capture. Mm-hmm. Queenstown has actually done it in the last couple of years. So when you rezone something or when you decide to put a new light railway through something or a new motorway or whatever, you say to those landowners, hey, the value of your land is going to go up by you know, three times when we do this. We're going to put a special land capture value rate on you so that we capture half of that gain that we gave you and you can keep the other half. And that's how we fund the infrastructure we need to build those houses. Plus, the government needs to start using its balance sheet to build lots of houses and um, weaponise other private companies to do the same. Um, If we don't do those things, do you think we are seeing or we will see sort of societal impacts? I mean, we're already seeing a gap in wealth. Do you think that's having flow-on effects for like 
broader societies, like how we interact with people and how we relate to people and our makeup, I guess, as New Zealand yeah. is the sort of, you know, number eight wire country. Like, What's yeah. it doing to our perception as a classless society? Exactly. Yeah, yeah we're not anymore. If we had a version of Tinder that was a real Kiwi version of Tinder or Bumble, it would have a checkbox that said, my parents own property. <laughs> and let's be honest about this. We do have a class system. Mm. It's about where you live and whether your parents own the home. Mm. So in those little drunken conversations and weddings, where you work out where the other family's from <laughs> and what their background is, you find out, A, what their profession is. That's not so important these days, actually. It's how many houses do they own? Do they own a batch at the beach? Mm-hmm. Have they got a two or three rental properties? We don't have a classless society. We have a Kuru Lounge society mm-hmm. where the people who run the joint bump into each other in the Kuru Lounge. Mm-hmm. Like, Come on, Bernard, you just need to work a bit harder, don't oh, you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, 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 yeah. More, no more um, lattes and um, mashed avocados. It, it has actually reminded me of a story. Last time I was in the Kuru Lounge with Sophie, she, in fact... <laughs> grabbed handfuls of cheese and redistributed it to oh, a colleague right. who couldn't get into the lounge. Did you go in and out the door? You take the cheese out to the masses, the proletariat. Yeah. Here's yeah. the cheese from the Coral Lounge yeah, and go back and forth. Because revolting and so yes. I bought them cheese. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that is a true story. Oh, it is a true yeah, story. Yeah. I did take the cheese so this, outside. This is, why, this is why fights in Coral Lounges are the best stories. Because <laughs> what it says is, ah, they're just like you and me. They have fights too. Nā mihinui to Bernard for talking to us. Let's remember, at the start of the episode, we set out to answer the question, is buying a first home harder than ever? In the process, we've heard from Northland homeowner James about buying a house with his partner. He bought his home in 2018, and since then he's watched the value shoot up so much that in that time it's earned more than him and his wife combined. I don't think I would really mind if the house prices did drop. If they stagnated or started like slowly drifting down, that would be 100% fine by me. Not like regrets or anything, I still feel like extremely lucky to just own a house in general. Vlad wasn't having any of that luck. He spent the last 10 years chasing an ever-increasing deposit that he just can't catch. One of the main things coming to New Zealand, I felt like this is a place where everyone has equal opportunity. We all have the same abilities, same possibilities. But now it's starting to feel like there's no level playing field. You either have it or you don't. Plus we heard from Alan Thorpe at the community housing provider Habitat for Humanity. How do you accumulate 20% of a million dollars or $670,000? It's just impossible. And breaking it all down for us, economist Bernard Hickey. The market is broken and New Zealand's broken because of it and has been really for 30 years so Soph after all that what do you think have we answered the question yeah sounds to me like buying your first home is fucking harder than ever I think being the wealthy elite that we are we're in a really lucky and fortunate position I don't I don't know if I feel elite you don't feel elite okay no I guess I am by some measures and uh, well I just feel kind of like an outdated 50s version of the average middle-class New Zealander. But actually, you're right. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the problem, though, right? Like, we have all these people thinking they're not uh, elite or they're not special and that people just need to work a bit harder and do a bit more and all of those sorts of things. But it's actually the 1950s dream isn't the case anymore. 
I'd like to see the change that would allow myself to potentially own a house. But I think the government itself probably feels that everything is working as intended. The question is, who is it really working for? Hello, I'm Abby Darman and I work in the campaigns team at Consumer New Zealand. I want to tell you about some of the exciting work we're doing here at Consumer New Zealand. Right now, literally, as we speak, we are working really hard to keep big businesses and our lawmakers in check. So we're currently engaged in taking on unfair retirement village contracts, misleading supermarket pricing and dodgy green claims. To keep up this good work, we need to raise $50,000 before the 24th of September. So please, if you can, help us to help others by heading to consumer.org.nz forward slash donate. Thanks so much.